0: Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, and I'll begin reading in verse 22. Uh, We are in a series where we are reflecting on the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, The the animating dynamic, you might say, of our Christian life uh, is not merely uh, doctrinal conviction, it's not merely moral standard, uh, as incredibly important as both of those things are. Uh, the animating reality of our Christian life is Jesus. And so it's good, is it not, from time to time for us to stop and open the word that King Jesus has given us and see him afresh? So I want to do that together with you now as we read Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 39. And they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled. And told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told him, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him, to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city, How much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word. Well, it's the time of year when kids especially are thinking about what they will get for Christmas. And uh, when I was a kid, every Christmas from about three, maybe to about nine years old, the same thing every year was on the top of my Christmas list. Transformers. Now, some of you know about Transformers because of blockbuster movies in recent years, but you don't know about like Transformers, Saturday morning cartoon Transformers. Transformers appear to be typical machines, tractor trailers, dump trucks, sports cars, but they transform into alien robot warriors. And so every Saturday morning from 3 to 9, if I didn't have a game, I was in front of the TV with a bowl of cereal watching Optimus Prime do his thing. Now, every week, if any of you who are maybe over 35 will go with that, um, ever watch this, you know that every Saturday that theme song reached a crescendo at that last line. Transformers more than meets the eye, right? All right, bear with me now. In the next few sections of the Gospel of Luke, Luke begins to show that while Jesus appears to be a mere man, even a great mere man, he is more than meets the eye. You see what I did there, huh? (laughs) Yep, yep, thank you, thank you. Got Christmas, got the kids, got everybody all in one intro. You're welcome. Now, our passage today recounts one remarkable day, one day in the life and ministry of Jesus. And this day is a day of reckoning for everybody who's involved in this particular day. Jesus does two great things. He calms a storm on the sea and he delivers a man afflicted by many demons. And as he does these things, there is such an unmistakable revelation of his power and authority and supernatural reign that everyone who encounters him on this day has to reckon with it. They might resist it, they might try to manage it, but they cannot ignore it. Every human being and every spiritual being who encounters Jesus on this day must reckon with the reign of Jesus. Now friends, you and I are in the same position. As you and I get closer to Jesus, as we read his word and as we learn of his life and as we see his impact on the world, it demands a response. And so the title of today's message is reckoning with the reign of Jesus. Reckoning with the reign of Jesus. And we'll consider this from the perspective of the four entities, you might say, uh, who encounter Jesus here. The disciples, the demons, the disinterested, and the delivered. And we'll treat the first two much more at length and then briefly reference the last two. But each of these will perceive the reign of Jesus on this day and then they'll ask Jesus a question that reveals how they are reckoning with his reign. So first up, the disciples. Now the disciples encounter the reign of Jesus in a storm at sea. After a long day of ministry, the other gospel writers tell us, Jesus gets into a boat on the Sea of Galilee and he says to his disciples, guys, let's go over to the other side. And so they load up and they head out, apparently while Jesus takes a nap. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a lake about 33 miles around. You can go see it, obviously, to this day. It's actually the lowest freshwater lake on earth. And it is surrounded by very high peaks with very narrow valleys. And so because of that geographical layout, it is prone to sudden and violent gusts and storms of wind. Now, that's exactly what happens on this particular trip. But apparently, this was not just your typical Galilean windstorm. Because many of these disciples are professional fishermen that they are in their home court, like this is what they do. They make their living on this lake. They are on it daily. They know it like the back of their hands, and no doubt they have, they have sailed through these kinds of storms before. But this time, the pros even are so worried that they are convinced everybody on this boat is about to die. Verse 24, they wake up Jesus and they say, Jesus, we are perishing. That indicates to us this is pretty bad. Now, imagine being on a flight and hitting some turbulence. Normally, you you hear this reassuring voice, don't you? Hello, this is your captain speaking. As you've noticed, we've hit a little bumpy air. You know, you just peeled yourself off the roof of the cabin, But he's like, oh, we just hit a little bumpy air, you know. Um, In abundance of caution, I've left the fastened seatbelt side on, but, you know, enjoy the rest of your flight, right? Well, this is like that pilot getting on the intercom and saying, "Uh, it's been nice knowing you guys, this is the end of the line. It's that bad. Now, these fishermen are overcome with fear at the sight of this storm. Verse 24 says, he awoke, and Jesus rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. So at the words of Jesus, they go from perishing under extreme circumstances to smooth sailing, literally, in an instant. Now, this moment reveals several things about the reign of Jesus that these disciples now have to reckon with. First, it demonstrates that Jesus reigns over nature. We've seen throughout Luke that when Jesus speaks, stuff happens, even when he speaks now to nature. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6 tells us, That all things were made through him. It says, There is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are made and through whom we exist. So, God the Father is the author of creation, and God the Son is the agent of creation. And the world wasn't just initially created by the one they are now perceiving on this boat, and then sort of left to itself. It continues to be upheld by King Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so, if Christ created nature and sustains nature, it is certainly well within his power to change the course of nature as he wills. And he does that in this moment on this boat. Second, it demonstrates his divine and human natures. This is one of the great mysteries of our faith that we celebrate in particular at this time of year. The person of Christ. And here's a good shorthand way to remember it. We've talked about it a couple times here before. When you think about how do I understand kind of the doctrine of who Christ is, you can think one, two, three, four. Jesus Christ is one person. He's not two people. He's one person. And he has two natures. He has a divine nature and a human nature. And he fulfills three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And he fulfills those offices in in four historical moments. In his incarnation, in his suffering, in his resurrection, and his ascension. Doctrine of Christ, easy as one, two, three, four. One person, two natures, three offices, in four moments, four movements. Something of all of that is on kind of high-octane pressure cooker display all at the same time on this boat. His humanity is on display. Jesus needs a nap. He has been ministering all day long. He's been teaching all day long. I'm exhausted after an hour of this. I don't know how he did it after 12, 14, 16 hours going all day long. And he gets on this boat and falls asleep. He's tired. His physical body demands rest. If you just decided today, you know what, I've decided I'm done sleeping. I'm just not going to do it anymore. You don't have the power to overcome that limitation. I don't care how many monsters you drink, I don't care how many runs to Starbucks you do, eventually you're gonna hit the wall and crash because there are limitations to your physical makeup. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on those limitations in his human nature. He subjected himself to our frailty. The God of the universe through whom your body was made made himself subject to a human body. And as such, he needs a nap. He's tired. He's human. But Jesus is also fully divine. When his disciples wake him up, he commands winds and waves, and in an instant, they do exactly What he said. And it's even more revealing how he responds to his disciples in that moment after he's done this, and they're all just kind of standing there with their jaw on the floor, because his response to them indicates that he expects them to believe that he can protect them from harm even while he's asleep. That his divine nature is not in any way encumbered by the limitations of his human nature. So Jesus is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, even as he takes a nap after a long day's work. Jesus reigns over nature in his human and divine natures. The third thing they see here, which they now have to reckon with as well, is Jesus' power to protect, his power to protect. This is the second nature miracle in Luke. You might remember a couple of months ago, the first one is the miraculous catch of fish. Peter and the other guys have been out all night, they've caught nothing. Jesus says, go out for another round, and they come back with their nets bursting with fish. That miracle shows his power over nature to provide. This miracle shows his power over nature to protect. There is no force in the universe that is a threat to Jesus. There's nothing that makes him nervous about whether he can face up to this particular challenge, which means that there is no force in the universe that is a threat. To Jesus' disciples. And he expected them to know that. Which leads us now to consider how do the disciples reckon with this? Once Jesus calms this water, you remember he turns to the disciples and he asks them a question Where is your faith? Where's your faith? Now, Jesus isn't questioning whether they have faith at all. He's questioning why they haven't applied it in this situation. He's asking, why has, has that faith not shown itself? Where is it? Why has it not shown itself under duress? Well, if you've been walking with the Lord for longer than an hour, you know that's the nature of faith, right? Right? Faith is not a stagnant thing that you just sort of have or you don't. We are saved by faith, absolutely, which is a have it or don't have it type of thing. But then we walk by faith. We we live by faith. But sometimes, like these disciples, we have faith, but we struggle to apply it under pressure. That is one of the primary endeavors of the Christian life is applying your faith under pressure. I've quoted it before, but it fits so well here, I wanted to quote it again. Pastor named Francis Grimke uh, was preaching at 15th Street Presbyterian Church here in DC in 1918 after the outbreak of the Spanish flu. And in their first uh, service, regathering as a church after having not gathered for some time, He talked about faith. This is one of the things he said. What are epidemics? What are scourges? What are all of life's trials, sufferings, and disappointments? They only tend to work out for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But of course, if faith is to help us, if it is to put its strong arms under us, if we are to feel its sustaining power under such distressing circumstances, it must be a real living faith in God. Any other faith is of absolutely no value to us in the midst of the great crises of life. Think of it this way. How you process a bumpy ride isn't dependent on the intensity of the bumps. It's dependent on your faith that the bumps are under control. Now, here's what I mean. Think about how I mentioned a turbulent flight earlier. Think about how you process a turbulent flight as versus a roller coaster. Now, the ups and downs and twists and turns of a roller coaster are far more extreme than the most severe flight turbulence. But roller coasters exhilarate us and turbulent flights scare us because turbulent flights seem random, unpredictable, and out of control. But we believe roller coasters were designed and are controlled for our good. Friends, if you belong to Jesus, every bump in the journey of your life is ruled by King Jesus. It has not escaped its notice. It cannot escape his power. And he promises to redeem every twist and turn for your good. And often... He will use those threatening circumstances in your life the same way he used use them in the lives of the disciples on the water, to help you get a better glimpse of Jesus, to help you see him for who he is. I wonder what it was like when they finally got to shore. You ever been on a, a maybe a choppy cruise or a turbulent flight and you finally land and it's like, whew, You know, I'm on solid ground now. When the disciples finally got to shore and they had a minute to collect themselves and talk with each other about what just happened, I bet they said to each other, man, I do not ever want to go through that again. But I wouldn't trade that glimpse of Jesus for the world. That's what Christians who've suffered say. Man, I don't ever want to go through that again. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But man, the glimpse of Jesus I got in that trial, I wouldn't trade it for the world. The way he showed me his power, the way he comforted me with his love, I will take that the rest of my life. I know many of us in this room would say that as we think about on the great trials of our lives. And I hope for those of us who, who are walking through the trial of your life can see that by faith. One of the questions that naturally comes up when we consider Jesus' reign over nature is, well, if he can do these things, why doesn't he? At least in my experience, why doesn't he do it more often? I recently read an answer to that question and I just thought, It was so helpful. I just read it as it is. This is from John Piper in his book on God's providence. He says, if there is a storm at sea and an ocean liner is sunk, or if a hazardous weather condition brings down a commercial airliner and lives are lost, there is often an outcry, both publicly and in the personal grief of family members, about the failure of God to prevent this disaster. Intense grief is real and painful and understandable from all who experience loss in these disasters. And very often, even the most mature saints speak ill-advised words for the wind. Wise counselors, let them pass without judgment in the moment of crisis. But where is the corresponding emotional intensity or even the mild recognition of God's providence when 100,000 airplanes land safely every day. That is roughly how many scheduled flights there are every day in the world, and that does not include general aviation, air taxis, military, and cargo. Where is the incessant chorus of amazement and thanks that today God provided 10 million mechanical and natural and personal factors to conspire perfectly to keep these planes in the air and bring them to their desired destination safely, and most of them carrying people who neglect and demean God every day. And may God open our eyes to the myriad of ways that he is calming storms and bringing peace all around us. May the the song of our hearts be like the carol we so often sing Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let the earth receive her king. That's the disciples. The God-man reigns over the earth itself, and he calls his disciples to trust him. But then we get a glimpse of the reign of Jesus from the vantage point of demons. Now, in verse 26, it says, Eventually they made it to the shore in the country of the Gerasenes. And everything about this next episode is screaming, Jesus is not in Kansas anymore. Uh, We are not in Galilee. Uh, We're we're not just in the cozy confines of uh, Israel. The side of the lake they're on, the name of the city, even the name of the demon, the fact that there's pigs there, Uh, we're in Gentile country when we get to this side of the lake. And something I want to point out is Jesus led them there. These aren't accidental circumstances. Jesus said, let's get in the boat and go over there. This is the first time in Jesus' ministry that he will venture beyond the region of Galilee. And it begins to make a larger point that will continue to get fleshed out in the Gospel of Luke. Luke that God is a global God. He's not a regional deity. He's not a, a regional Messiah. Jesus is the one that the prophet Isaiah foretold would be a light to the Gentiles and would bring God's blessing to all nations. His rule and reign and his mercy and his grace extend to all peoples. And so by his initiative now, they are going beyond the borders Of Israel, as the carol says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And as soon as Jesus sets foot on dry ground, while his disciples are catching their breath, probably, Jesus encounters a man who has demons. Now, Luke gives the gruesome details of how the demon had afflicted this man. Demons have no sense of shame, and so they have this man walking around naked. They have no regard for a person's protection, and so they have him living outdoors among tombs, which were probably in caves. They have no regard for others, and so their violence is so persistent that the people of the city would put this man under guard, bound with chains, and the man would simply break his bonds and run out into the desert. And Luke notes that this is not just a momentary thing. He says twice, this has been going on for a long time. This is a thing for this man and for these people. When he asks, the demon says to Jesus that his name is Legion, which may be a reference to a legion of Roman soldiers, which was thousands Now, whatever it refers to exactly, Luke says it definitely indicates that there are many demonic forces, unclean spirits, oppressing this man. That means, literally speaking, Jesus is outnumbered. One Jesus face-to-face with lots of demons. But even they know this is still no contest, They don't need a demonstration of his power like the disciples in order to recognize his reign. That is not necessary in their case. They know it immediately. And in fact, they immediately answer the question that the disciples had asked on the boat. When Jesus calmed the sea, the disciples say, who is this who commands even winds and waves and they obey him? Well, as soon as he gets to shore, the demons see Jesus, and in verse 28, they fall down before him and say, "What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the most High God?" As we've said before, these demons confess the truth, but they do not confess the faith. They are crystal clear on who Jesus is, but they have no interest whatsoever in trusting Him. So how do they, how do these demons reckon with the reign of Jesus? Well, three times the text says they beg him. They beg Jesus. In verse 28, they say, I beg you, do not torment me. So the first way they reckon with it is they want to avoid the consequences of his reign. The demons have no problem tormenting others, as they've been doing to this man, likely for many years. But they certainly want to avoid any torment for themselves. They know Jesus could torment them, and so they beg him not to. Friends, some people will recognize the reign of Jesus, but not want to live under it. It's not a revelation issue. It's a desire issue. They just want to avoid the consequences for as long as possible. But that's like avoiding your bills by throwing them in the trash. It just makes it worse. You're avoiding a reckoning for now, but you're just piling it up for later. And they're content to do just that. Then in verse 31, it says, again, they begged him... Not to command them to depart into the abyss. The abyss is a reference to their ultimate destination. The demons are crystal clear on how all this is going to end. That's not up for debate for them. They're not asking questions about that, they're not curious about that. They know what's coming, they just don't know when it's coming. And so they beg him to delay the inevitable. We are living in a time when Christ's reign is experienced in part, but not yet in full. Christ's reign is both already and yet not yet. And so Jesus can and does command these demons and deliver this man, but their final destruction is yet to come. And so these demons know they are, they are living on borrowed time. And so they beg him to stay his hand a little longer. And then in verse 32, they beg him for a third time. It says now there's a large herd of pigs on the hillside, and they begged him to let them into these. And he gives them permission. The demons came out of the man, it says in verse 33, and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and drowned. Now, this raises all kinds of interesting questions. Demons can go into pigs? Should I be scared about the bacon I ate this morning? Like, what's... Um, why did all these poor pigs have to die? I love little pigs. Why, you know, why the pigs got to drown? Um, what about the livelihood of these herdsmen? They didn't do anything wrong. Uh, they would have been depending on these things. All very interesting questions, which the text gives zero answers to. Sorry, none of my um, you know, scholarly resources on the shelf got any good answers to those questions. You can list them out for heaven and ask Jesus when you get there. But there is a point to all of this that very much is clear. That is, wherever Jesus goes, he brings healing. And wherever demons go, they bring harm. Even pigs, right? Wherever they go, stuff gets destroyed. And wherever Jesus goes, stuff gets healed. Now, this is another example of the fact that Jesus' reign is good. I think we just need to stop and, and recognize not only the fact that he reigns, but the nature of that reign. Jesus does not just reign in a manner that's sort of disconnected from us. The reign of Christ is a benevolent reign. He calms storms for our protection and he drives out evil for our freedom. Friends, it's important for us to see that when the forces of evil encounter Jesus, they are completely freaked out. We've seen it before in Luke. We will see it again. When Jesus shows up and evil is in the room, Jesus is good. They are nervous. Here's why that matters for you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus reigns and you are united with him by faith. And so as you live your life, whatever evil you encounter, in whatever form, however it reflects itself in your life, you can have complete confidence that it's no match for Jesus. Complete confidence. There are two groups that are especially impacted by all this who reckon with the reign of Jesus too. And don't worry, these are going to be really brief. Uh, The people of the city and the man who was delivered. I'll refer to the people of the city as the disinterested. Not just because it starts with a D, although that's helpful. I'll refer to them as that because whoever Jesus is and whatever Jesus is doing, it's clear they've decided they will take a pass. Hard pass on Jesus among the garrison. Have you ever thought, man, if I could just see Jesus do a miracle in person, that would alleviate all my doubts. I would just be good to go. If he could show up right here and just do this miraculous thing, I'm all set. Well, it's not necessarily true. And this shows us that faith is not by sight. And that's evident in the response of the people in the city. The herdsmen apparently are not happy about losing their herd. Think about that for a moment. How many pigs are worth the life of one man? The fact that they are more concerned about their herd than they are about the deliverance of this man who had been so violently oppressed for so long, not to mention the good that did to the whole city by these demons being gone reveals something about their priorities they are more concerned with the stability of their bottom line than they are about the healing of this man and the peace of their city now to be clear Jesus had not harmed the pigs the demons had but Jesus being around had disturbed the status quo it stirred things up, and they don't appreciate that. They just want to be left alone. So if you look this afternoon at verses 35 and 36, you'll see the people of the city conduct an investigation. They gather together, and they come, and they observe the scene of the incident. They see the drowned pigs. They see the delivered man who now is in his right mind, has got clothes on, he's good to go. And they talk to eyewitnesses. It's a pretty thorough investigation. And they apparently conclude that Jesus really did do something remarkable here because it says they were greatly afraid. They are perceiving the reign of Jesus. But they do not want this kind of thing happening anymore. The disciples had been afraid when they saw the power of Jesus. But that fear drove them to wonder. It drove them to worship. The fear of the Gerasenes drives them to guard their interests. To keep Jesus at arm's length. Friends, some people are willing to recognize the reign of Jesus as long as it doesn't actually change anything. And as soon as Jesus starts threatening to rearrange things, mm, they've had enough. They, They prefer to acknowledge the reign of Jesus at a comfortable distance. Friends, if we're honest, there are times all of us can be in that kind of place. In this case, Jesus gives them what they asked for, he grants their request. Verse 37 says, all the people of the surrounding country asked him to depart. They were seized with fear. So Jesus got in the boat and returned. It's actually scary to think that sometimes if you ask Jesus to go away, he will. And friend, when you face the hard times, you can't blame Jesus when he gives you what you asked for but that doesn't mean he's going to leave you to yourself. Jesus does not leave those people without a testimony. Look at the testimony of the delivered in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home, and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus honored their request for him to leave, but he sent them an ambassador. He sent them someone with a testimony of what Jesus had done. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, He taught them to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When Jesus delivers you from evil, as he had delivered this man, this man's response is the natural response. To long for Jesus' presence and to proclaim Jesus' goodness. If you're a disciple and you have been delivered by evil, and you have, if you've trusted in Christ's obedient life, and you've trusted in his substitutionary death, and you've trusted in his victorious resurrection for your redemption, the power of Satan in your life has been defeated. And the bondage that you once were enslaved to, to sin, has been broken. And you've been given new resurrection life by the Holy Spirit. And now as you walk by faith, as you live in response to what he's already done, let me ask you today, how are you reckoning with the reign of Jesus? How are you and I, uh, How you and I respond to our circumstances reveals what we believe about the reign of Jesus. So when the storms of life churn and, and evil in the world presses in, what's your heart say? Do you say like I do sometimes, Jesus, I'm perishing here. Are you gonna do something about it? Sometimes it's good to pray prayers like that. Do you say, Jesus, just leave me alone? Now, y'all are good Christians. You wouldn't say that out loud. But does your prayer life indicate that maybe that's what you're looking for? Jesus, I don't need you meddling in here. I'm comfortable as it is. Or do you look to Jesus like this delivered man and say, Jesus, stay with me? Do you go to others and tell them, can I tell you how much Jesus has done in my life? You will trust in the reign of Jesus in the storms and you will trust in Jesus in the face of evil. If you believe that he reigns, that his presence with you is for your good, and if you remember it, (laughs) You remember your own deliverance such that you can't help but proclaim it to everybody around you. When you live like that, you're a living picture, one last time, of that carol. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the benevolent reign of King Jesus. Lord, for those of us here who are your disciples, we're so grateful that you are with us, that you've promised to never leave us or forsake us, and that you are greater than every evil power that we encounter, and you are the master over every storm we journey through. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as your disciples to afresh, remember your deliverance, remember your power so that we trust you in our storms, so that the great arms of faith come up under us in our times of need. And God, so that we enjoy your presence and proclaim your faithfulness as we remember all that you've done. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful for all that you've done and we worship you in your mighty name.